Welcome to the Bringing Intimacy Back Show, where intimacy is real. If you desire to intimately connect with yourself, your significant other, children, family, friends, community, and your higher power, this show is for you. Thus, we explore intimate topics, inspiring life stories, spirituality, and insightful tips on strengthening relationships. This show is hosted by Dr. April and her co-host, Dr. Kelly. Now let's get this episode of the Bringing Intimacy Back Show started because we share with you the secret power to intimacy to create a life you love or love the life you create. Now here's your host, Dr. April and co-host, Dr. Kelly. Welcome to the Bringing Intimacy Boat Show, where intimacy is real. Oh, hi, Dr. Kelly. How are you doing? I'm doing real good, actually. Yeah. I, I'm, it's the day after Valentine's Day. Yes, it is. Yes, yes. And so <laughs> for everybody that's out there listening, um, it's probably maybe not the, you know, the day after Valentine's Day and their love may be um, thinking about different things. But I'm glad you mentioned that because, you know, in this show, we talk about intimacy and love and sometimes what happens in the day-to-day life, which is stress. I Have you had any stress today, Jessa Zimmerman? <laughs> have I had any stress? Um, a little stress over the weekend with a foot of snow here in Seattle. So we were housebound, which, you know, given COVID, we're not leaving the house that much, but the weekend is our one time to do it and we couldn't, so... But it's, it's being rained away now. Awesome. Yes. And so um, let us introduce um, Jess. Jess Zimmerman is a Seattle, you're what, a mental health, you're a marriage and family therapist? Well, technically I'm a, a licensed mental health counselor, okay. but more than that, I'm a certified sex therapist. So that's yes. mostly what I work with. Yes. So you help couples who, who find that sex is stressful or negative or um, their performance in the bedroom is stressful or stress their partners out? Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, the way I think of it is I help people in an otherwise happy relationship figure out how to make sex actually easy and fun for both people because so much of the time it isn't. You know, they're in a really good relationship, they're best friends or whatever, and, and somehow sex is difficult. Right. And then it, they think it shouldn't be difficult. And then they get worried about it. And then all this anxiety builds up and then they start to avoid it. And it just becomes a much bigger deal than it needs to be. Okay. In fact, you wrote a book called Sex Without Stress. I did. Yes. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Somebody prompted me to write the book. It's like, what are the things you say to everybody over and over and over again? And maybe you want to put that in a book. So <laughs> that's what I did, you know, because I, I can only see so many people in my office in Seattle in a week, right? Like there's only so many hours. And so yeah. this is like, how can I put this process into some form that, that everybody can have? So, yeah. so Jess, how did you ever get into this field of sex therapy? Well, um, I went back to school to get my master's to become a therapist uh, as a product of divorce, actually. And I was determined to figure out how this whole relationship thing worked. So I knew I wanted to focus on couples because um, actually, you know, my parents are happily married for 52 years and all four of us kids got divorced. So it's like, all right, growing up with that was not enough <laughs> to equip us for success. So I'm going to figure this out. And early in that training, a sex therapist uh, was teaching one of the little mini courses, right. and she said she considered her work to be mostly grief and loss work. Wow. And that really hit me because people are suffering when their sex life isn't working with their partner. There is real grief around this. It has such a big impact. And I've known both sides of that. I've known a really thriving sex life and that I'd been, you know, in places where it wasn't working and I knew that pain. So it was one of those lightning bolt moments, which I haven't had that many of them, but that was one. It's like, okay, I'm going to be a sex therapist. And then of course it took, you know, I had to finish school and get licensed and do all the training. It's quite an ordeal to become certified in sex therapy, but so it, it took a little while, but that's what I did. Yes. Yes. Good, good. Yeah. Cause you're a member of ASAC, which... Right, right. Yes, yes. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, because um, I think even Dr. Kelly's curious, you said that you grew up in a family that your parents are all together. And then, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What What did you find out in your studies? Um, what did I find out? I mean, I, I, I don't know if I can totally explain how my parents were so happily married. I think part of the problem was they made it look so easy. Oh, so that when I had struggles... I just thought something was broken. So right. I, I didn't see 
conflict and repair because they got along so well. So I thought, oh, if you're with the right person, it just works. And so when it wasn't working, I didn't know what to do. So I think that was the biggest discovery that I had. Mm-hmm. How to speak honestly about what's going on, how to deal with hard conversations, how to stick with that, how to advocate for yourself and yet make space of your partner, all those kinds of things. And I think a similar thing happens with clients. They think sex should just work. Right. If I'm with the right person, it should just work. And if it isn't, something must just be broken. So people think either I'm broken or something's wrong. You know, maybe I'm with the wrong person or, you know, something must be fundamentally flawed. And that isn't the case. We often have to work on it. Where do these messages come from? Because quite honestly, it doesn't work the first time for like 99% (laughs) of the people. That's true. And so maybe, maybe that first time sets the seed for a lot of people, like what's wrong with me? Cause I think if, you know, if you look at TV and movies or something, you just don't see those struggles. You don't see those conversations for so many people. You weren't raised to even talk about sex. Right. Uh, you know, maybe you've never seen conflict handled well, like in my family, I just didn't see conflict in other places. I saw conflict with no resolution. So we're just not equipped. People aren't having these conversations and then TV and movies romanticize this whole thing. Could you imagine if they actually had a blooper reel of the the people have trying to have sex and what that would look like? That would be a fun blooper reel. Well, it's I mean it's amazing because so many people will come into to therapy and be like, "Are we broken? Are we normal?" And it's like, well, first of all, normal is not a word. You know, we can toss that out. There's no normal. There's no abnormal. But they just want this reassurance that they're not the only ones struggling. And they don't realize I talk to people all day long as, as does every other therapist I know in Seattle, sex therapist, right? We're all full. We're all talking all day long with people that are struggling with this, Mm -hmm. but nobody would know it. And in fact, so many couples will say, our friends think we're the perfect couple. They all think everything is perfect. They don't know we haven't had sex in six months or whatever it is, you know? So nobody's talking about their struggles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. Um, It'd be great if we were to learn these things early in life. Like if our parents would sit down or I don't know. Yeah. 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 I'm a big advocate for that because again, as I talk to people in therapy and they say, well, I know my parents had sex twice because there's me and my sister, <laughs> you know, and there's just no, there's no openness about sex in the household. And they've grown up with it either being this big, scary, mysterious thing, or this unknown thing. They weren't equipped to, I don't know, to be able to understand really how sex works, you know, the realities of this instead of these sort of myths that we get or how to talk about it, you know, how to advocate for what you want, how to figure out what you want, all these things that would be so useful to have explored before, you know, before you settle down. Yeah. So before we talk about it, like you said, how we talk about it and people are out there listening, what do you think are some of the best settings and how you even go about starting that conversation? Uh, with your partner or with your, with your partner. Yeah. So I do, um, I do have a whole like PDF available for people on this. Cause I think it's really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, there's a couple different, it's been a little while since I've looked at it, but <laughs> okay. spending some time preparing for that conversation is really important. So really just reflecting on what's happening and how you feel about it and what you wish were happening and just really get clear about what you even see. Right. And then reflect on your contribution to that. How are you (laughs) either bringing in expectations or maybe reacting poorly or not speaking up about what you want or having some role in a dynamic around sex that isn't really working? Um, Then spend some time trying to imagine what it's like in your partner's shoes. What do you think is going on for them? What do you think they are thinking and feeling? What do you think they're afraid of? How could you see their behavior in the best light, like the most compassionate light, right? So you do all that sort of forethought (laughs) and then approach your partner in a way that's about positivity. Like I want our relationship to be as strong as it can possibly be. And we both know, because generally both people know this is not going that well. And, but I don't want to blame you for that or fight about it. I want us to solve this together so that it's really, really working for both of us, right? We want to win, win here. So let's Let's attack this together, you know, as opposed to adversaries, we're going to be allies. So those first three parts that you said, which were to state about kind of what's going on, think about it and think about how you contribute to what's going on and Mm -hmm. think about um, putting yourself in in your partner's shoes. Those three you do by yourself and then you go talk to your partner. That's what I recommend to really spend a fair amount of time thinking ahead 
and, you know, really taking on your own contribution and confronting yourself first, I think is so important. And then really trying to, what I call pre-empathize, it's probably not a word, but <laughs> you may not be right about what your partner's thinking and feeling, but trying to imagine what they might be afraid of and how this is for them. And so that you're going into that conversation with more compassion, you know, cause a lot of people are having this conversation in a kind of a heated way or a blaming way or defensive way. And that keeps you sort of on two different sides of the table instead of, wait, we're working as a team because we're both invested in this relationship and we want this to be again, fun and easy for both of us. Yeah. Not starting sentences with you never, or you always, or even you, right. I, yes. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. um, and then of course, uh, the sexual intimacy is, is not, it's on an emotional level and not just physiological. So you deal with both of those. Do you deal with those separately or individually? I mean, individually or together? Um, I don't think you can do them individually, really. I mean, I guess you could be talking about one at a time, but they're so, you know, they're so entwined. You know, like one thing I'll say is I'm a sex therapist, but I'm also a couples counselor. And you really, those used to be two different fields. I, I can't even believe that, right? Like how, right. so you can't take sex out of the context of the relationship or out of the emotional connection, right? It's, it's part of a system. And so we might be talking about one or the other, but they're inextricably linked, you know? In fact, I have people send me clients. They'll be in couples counseling with somebody else, and that person sends them to me to talk about sex, as if we can kind of take this one piece out and only talk about that. We're not going to talk about the fact that you're fighting and get these power. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, they don't understand. It's like, no, we can't, we can't just take sex out of everything else. Right. Awesome. Yes. Well, we're going to take a small break, and then when we come back, um, Jessa is going to enlighten us with some, how can we have good sex and how stress impacts and sometimes may cause us to have not so good stress, but she's going to teach us different ways and how to fix that. All right. Are you wanting a vacation in paradise? A vacation to rekindle the passion. A vacation without the kids. A vacation where you can learn how to communicate where you and your partner actually hear each other and gain insight. If so, Vacation Counseling is your next vacation. Dr. April Brown has created Vacation Counseling in Southwest Florida as a perfect option for you and your partner. Our retreats are one couple at a time. We have a variety of packages available to choose from, including virtual couples retreats. If you and your partner are interested in the Vacation Counseling, please visit us at vacationcounseling.com for more information on pricing and packages. Also, follow us on Instagram and Facebook. To keep track of the latest news, stories, activities, or coupons on vacation counseling and Dr. April's other services, we encourage you to sign up to receive a monthly newsletter called Intimate Connections at draprilbrown.com. Remember, if you and your partner are struggling with communication and intimacy and you all are looking for a retreat to connect, Vacation counseling can be your next vacation in Southwest Florida. Okay, welcome back to the Bring in Intimacy Show with Jeff Zimmerman from Seattle. And she is a licensed mental health counselor and a certified sex therapist who's written a great book, how sex without stress. I actually have a copy of it. So you can see it. Yes. Um, a couple's guide to overcoming disappointments, avoidance, and pressure. So Jess, as we start into the meat and bones of this topic, um, what are some of the stressors that causes um, couples not to have good sex or good intimacy? Um, I, I guess I want to start by explaining um, what I call the sexual avoidance cycle. Okay. So what happens for couples is for any number of reasons, they start to have sexual experiences that don't meet their expectations. So they think it's supposed to go a certain way, or they think certain things are supposed to happen, or they think they're supposed to feel a certain amount of desire or whatever it is. And it doesn't go that way. Um, that generates bad feelings, you know, so at the very least disappointment, but maybe frustration, resentment, worry, 
that something is wrong. Like they get in their head. What does this mean for our relationship? And when sex starts to run the risk that you're going to come out feeling bad like that, all that self-doubt, that's what causes people to start to avoid it. Because, you know, why in the world would you run off to the bedroom if you might come out feeling like you're a failure or that this means your relationship is doomed or something, right? So people start to avoid it, uh, but that increases the pressure. There's more pressure on their sex life in general because there's this idea that we should be having sex and we're not, or my partners want sex and I don't. And, but there's also more pressure on the sex that they have. If two people are having sex frequently, whatever that is, right? A time doesn't go well. It's not that big a deal. If you're not having sex very much and it doesn't go well, it feels huge, right? Like this time has to go well. We have to disprove this idea that something's wrong. So there's so much more pressure on the sex that they have. But if you think about it, how likely is it you can have a relaxed, enjoyable experience under that kind of pressure, right? So you're likely to have yet another disappointing experience. So that's why this becomes a cycle. So when I'm talking about the stress um, that's on a couple around sex, that's what it's about. It's about these expectations that aren't being met, this idea that somehow something is going wrong. And that starts to create more and more pressure on them, which then drives their sex life down. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense in the sense of that, that pressure. And then I think sometimes when people have that pressure, um, they leave the sex scene, you know what I'm saying? That their body yeah. is there, but their mind is not there. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, and sometimes when we're talking about the kinds of things that, that create these negative experiences, it can just be that it's hard to, it's hard to shut off my mind from the kids in the house and the job and really be present. You know, sometimes it's about sexual dysfunction, but more than half of my in my clients, more than half the time, their bodies work. It's not like they've got sexual dysfunction, but you know, that can be at play. Maybe they've got pain. They've got other relationship dynamics that are in the way. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got regular old life stress that's in the way. They've got medical issues, you know, different health concerns that are, that are blocking them. I mean, so, or even just, even just what we call desire discrepancy, which is one person wants more sex than another. That's actually universal. Because why would any two people want the same amount of sex, right? But so many couples start to experience that as a problem. And then that starts to feel really bad. And that's what will kick them into the cycle. Okay. Do you talk with couples on learning how to negotiate that? In the sense of, you know, um, I want it five times a week, but I think it's good we do two, two times a week. So. Well, what I don't want them to do is a math problem (laughs) where all they do is average that, right? You want it three times. I want once. We'll just do it twice. Like that's the wrong conversation if we're just talking about frequency. But I I have conversations with people all the time about how to handle desire discrepancy differently. Okay. Because there are some predictable ways people get into trouble. So the first one is that the, what I call, or what is called the higher desire person, right? The person that wants more sex tends, when it's a problem, tends to take their partner's less desire personally. Mm-hmm. They personalize it. They feel rejected. Right. They think it's about them. All of a sudden, I'm not, you're not attracted to me. Right. So they make it personal when most of it, if not all of it, is not personal at all. It's about how the desire works for their partner. But if you're going to make it personal, then all of a sudden, the meaning of the sex changes. Right. Now it's not about, oh, the two of us are sharing an experience and going somewhere together. Now it's about, I need to make you feel okay about yourself. Right. And that's less and less engaging for the other person over time. Mm -hmm. Right. So it really starts to be almost toxic. Okay. Another um, common problem, uh, when one person wants something more than the other person, that creates pressure. It's like air pressure, high pressure, low pressure, the wind is going to come through. You can't get away from that. Like we don't want to add extra pressure, but the, the person who doesn't want sex as much, it can be waiting for the pressure to go away. And that won't happen because their partner has more desire. Like it's built in. Okay. So there's gotta be a way of, of being sort of an active participant in a sex life that can work instead of thinking, for instance, just don't initiate anymore. Let me bring it up when I'm ready. <laughs> and people think that's going to take the pressure off, but it doesn't because you know, your partner still wants sex and now they're just waiting for you. So it's like, the, it's actually the opposite. The pressure goes up. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and then thought. the, Go ahead. well, I was gonna say the other thing I'll talk to basically everyone about is that there are two different ways to have sexual desire. 
So one I call proactive. This is where it's on my mind. I'm horny. You know, I'm thinking about this. I would like to make it happen. And that's what we think of as sex drive or libido. And that's what we think we're supposed to feel. But lots and lots of people have what I call reactive desire, which is, wow, I wasn't thinking about sex at all. But if we get started and things are good between us and I get the time I need and the touch I need, and maybe my body starts to respond, I start to get turned on. Now I want sex. And I describe that to people and they're like, oh, well, yeah, that happens. Like they didn't, they don't understand that's also sex drive, but that needs an opportunity to emerge, right? That means you have to start. <laughs> that means things have to be good between you. That means you do need to get the time and the touch you need. And mostly you need no pressure that it has to show up, mm -hmm. that it's a commitment to have sex. Like you don't know yet if you're going to end up in the mood or not, you've got to be willing to just kind of jump off and start. When you're describing this, I think about some infertile couples that the pressure comes on when they're like, okay, we have to go pro yeah. it stops being fun. Yes. And, uh, so just the way that you were des describing this, this entire facet of a sexual relationship and the dynamic made me think about infertile couples that are, okay, this is it. Here's our window. We have five minutes or whatever. Yeah. Right, right. You got to perform, you know, on demand, we got to do it because the stick says now or something. And that's a, that is a lot of pressure. And it's, um, I suppose it's really a lot of pressure on somebody with a penis who's supposed to just get aroused because you can't have intercourse without that. If, you know, female bodied person can have sex, I suppose, if they're not aroused may not be the most pleasant thing, but at least they can do it. But yeah, this idea that it's become a little bit of I mean, some people describe it as almost like a science experiment or a certain, or it's mechanical. We just got to show up whether we feel like it or not. And they keep doing that. And depending on how long the, it takes to get pregnant or to go through the fertility process, they can kind of lose touch with any real pleasure and connection, which to my mind is the whole point of sex in the first place. Right. Yeah, and when that, I think that there, there's that whole dynamic when a lot of couples, they, they just stop and then they say, we're going to just adopt. And yeah. physiologically, what happens, the stress is on and <laughs> they get pregnant after they get their first baby. Yeah. So people like relax, initiate. It takes time and communication, but it's worth it. You know? it, I mean, it's easy. It's easy to say, oh yeah, just relax. You know, when you're just dying for a baby and it feels like, I mean, I get that it's so, so heavy, but I still would encourage people to take the time to create some environment, light some candles, have some foreplay, try not to make it like we got two minutes, that's it. Yeah. Um, or even if that's when you need to do it, when you're fertile, make sure you're tending to a deeper intimate connection the rest of the month or something. Don't neglect, I mean, try not to let it just become this mechanical procreative uh, event. Yeah. And also, and I'm sure Dr. April, you could speak into this too. It's not just the the man that wants sex all the time. It, oh, no. Not just that. I know you guys are both sex therapists. And so you could speak into that a little bit because some women may feel like I am the only woman listening to this podcast that wants more sex than my husband. Yeah, yeah no, no, there's nothing about gender. And, you know, and that's one more myth that I think really puts a burden on us. It's this idea that men are supposed to always want sex, always be ready to go. And if that, if it's a woman and if it's a heterosexual relationship and the woman wants more sex, they may both be thinking something's really wrong. Why doesn't this guy want sex, you know, or why don't I? And it's, uh, it's a myth in my practice. Now, again, these are people coming in around sexual problems, but I'd say it's about 50, 50. It's often the, the man who's struggling. Sometimes the pressure on him to perform or to know, you know, he's supposed to be responsible for his partner's pleasure, or he's worried about his erections, or there's so much stress in other ways, or he just has reactive desire. That's not just a female experience. Right. Right. I know um, Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are, they, she puts it as um, there's some of us who have the accelerator mm -hmm. when it comes to sex. We wanted more. You know? Right. And while there's others who put the brakes on, they get very tense and they want less sex when they're stressed. Right. Right. And it's sort of built into our brains. How do we respond under stress and pressure? You know, right. for most people, it affects libido, which I think is a lot of the reason I guess anecdotally, I don't know that there's studies yet that in this COVID quarantine, my, you know, from all my clients, people are having way less sex, Thanks. even though they're home together 24 seven, they've got way more access to each other. Uh, but the stress 
uh, intention of this whole situation is killing people's interest. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So you have like a nine phase of experimental process that you take couples through? Well, it's evolved a little bit since writing the book. What I have are, um, the way I think of this is there's sort of eight competencies, okay, maybe nine, that I, that I am trying to help people develop. So in the book, I put those as phases, like you'd work through them one at a time, because in the book, they needed to have an order. Okay. <laughs> uh, but it's a little bit like, wow, we're kind of practicing all this at the same time. And it's kind of, it's a lot to perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't have a copy of it in front of me, so I may ask you to read me some. Oh, we'll, see if I can, we'll see if I can come up with them all on my own. Um, communicating about sex okay. is a big one, right? People need to be able to talk about their sex life in right. general and how they feel about it, but they also need to be able to talk about sex explicitly. Right. What do I want? What do I not want? What turns me on? What doesn't, right? So trying to develop a capacity to talk to our partner about sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, accessing desire. Okay. How do we figure out what we want and what we like? How do we learn to work with our maybe reactive desire? How, what's our on-ramp? What are our obstacles to that? What might be going on that's blocking, you know, medications or stress or illness or whatever, blocking our access to desire, right? So wanting is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, being present. Yes. You talked about, you know, not being up in your head, worried and distracted or, you know, concerned about performance or just concerned about the dishes or the kids or whatever, or your work. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's super important. Enjoying the journey and not the destination. I can't tell you how many people, I I mean, it's nice. I I want people to be able to have an orgasm if they want one, but I have to talk people out of the idea that that is the point or that is the goal. Right. That's supposed to be about play. You, yeah. 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 And I want, you know, if somebody has trouble getting to an orgasm, I want to explore that. I want that to be an option, but that's not the point. <laughs> and if you're so focused on the future, like we're trying to get here right to a goalpost or something, you're kind of missing the whole romp down the field. And that's a shame, right? Because that can be really enjoyable. Yes. So, um, and then I'm talking to people about being selfish because I think for really good sex, you have to have moments where you take pleasure and you allow yourself to savor that. I, I use an, an analogy with clients about think if, if anybody has a cat, you know how shameless they are about wanting to be pet and they're just going to enjoy that. They're going to ask for it. Like that's a good aspect to bring to sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and Her you're going to and pawing. <laughs> maybe, maybe I licking, you know, with the spiky yeah. tongue. Right. Um, the ability to take pleasure and let it be about you and take up that space is so, so important. And lots of people struggle with that. They have been raised to be people pleasers or not thinking about themselves, or they've got bad connotations with that or something, but it's really important. And then of course, the flip side is to be giving to allow your partner to do that. So there's sort of a flow between those things, you know? Um, Okay. April, you're looking at the book. What else have I missed in terms of competencies there? (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, No, exploring um, being erotic. Yeah. So that's the last one is exploring eroticism, which is the idea of what really turns us on. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of shown by our sexual preferences, by our fantasies, if we have them, by the kinds of scenes that we read or see on TV or in movies that we respond to, like what flips that switch. And so learning, once you've kind of taken the stress out of your sex life, once it's really working and it's fun and easy, it can be really fun to, with your partner, figure out what's erotic to each of us. How do we share that with each other? And then what do we want to do with that information? You know, maybe we don't want to do the things that turn us on, but maybe it's fun to think about or talk about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess the first one in the beginning was um, intimacy, just prioritizing intimacy. Oh, prioritizing, right. So yeah, yeah, that's, we got to start off by how do we even make some time to take care of some of this or put some energy into it? Because for a lot of couples, well, especially if they've been together for a long time, but then in COVID, how do we carve out some time to actually focus on each other and not just like live side by side, turning on the TV, zoning out and days, weeks have gone by, you know, the idea of making this a priority and putting in some effort is really important. Right. 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 And I think that's important to, and couples don't really think about it. And it just goes like weeks and weeks and weeks and months. And then, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid to even talk about it. 
Yeah. And it was, I think it was like that before tons of time could go by for sure, but somehow there's some weird thing in quarantine here where every day feels the same and we're barely kind of getting through and we're not really aware of time passing. We all think it's about to be over, but it, it, it you know, 11 months later, it isn't. Um, and it's really, really easy to just kind of coexist mm-hmm. um, even more than pre pandemic. Right. Because also I'm thinking we see each other all the time now. So that little um, air, you know, yeah. which creates fire, which creates passion, we're not having. Right, right. And we can't hardly get out of the house or do anything new. So there's not really pursuits or things that feed us and, turn, you know, uh, energize us out in the world. Like it's really challenging right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I've been seeing that in a lot of the, the couples. And I'm not sure, if Dr. Kelly, if you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, I am seeing a rise on more couple counts, more couples counseling. Even this week, I had mm-hmm. a lot more. Um, yeah, I think when you were communicating about that, I just remembered like uh, the fireplaces in northern Michigan, and they all have those like things that you uh, oh the bellows or whatever those yeah, things are, and, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing too is is that I think about the charcoals, and then you know if you pull one outside of the fire, then it'll just get cold and become ashen. So we have to stay together and finding those, finding ways that you can be together in a household, even though you may have your own offices and that office may be the kitchen table. I mean, uh, the other day I had friends uh, visiting and we were all working at the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Three separate different jobs, three <laughs> separate individuals, and we're like, are you kidding? I just couldn't believe it. Literally legit like an office. Wow. And and it's like, oh, and then we're gonna eat here too. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So I wonder what people are actually doing in their bed. Like, you know. That's true. They're probably I mean, some some people at least have set up an office in their bedroom or sitting on the bed with their laptop and it's this cross, you know, it's no yeah, longer the special place where this is where we go. Yeah, having their Zoom meetings with their earbuds in, laying down. Yeah. I am culprit because I, I don't like, I, I put on the, stop the video. You know, I always tell people they have to pay more to see me. <laughs> and just keep the earbuds in and just listen and then be engaged. But I'm even not, I am not even fully engaged there at times. Yeah, yeah. And as hard as it is to get good couple time in this pandemic, it's also hard to get alone time. Like we're living in this weird limbo where we're neither getting really good time to do our own thing or really good time together. We're just kind of like <laughs> mulling around and it's really, really important to block this out. When are we expecting to really connect with each other? And when do we have none of that expectation? So I know I can dive into some other sort of project or a book or whatever um, and try to be clear about that, like overt and not just let the kill the whole evening and not use it for any good purpose. You know, um, earlier you talked about sexual avoidance. Um, What causes sexual avoidance? Well, again, it's those negative feelings. Some idea that something should be different than it is. Um, Or, or, you know, really bad experiences like pain or something. That's not just an idea. That's an actual physiological thing that would make you avoid sex. But largely it's it's this idea that um, something is going wrong. This isn't working. You know, and whether it's a, a totally a myth, like we think my partner should always be the one to initiate or whether it's, some, you know, sexual dysfunction, whatever it is, that's a problem in your sex life starts to get people to avoid it because it makes them feel bad. You know, it's human nature to avoid what makes us feel bad or makes us anxious. We, we back away and we avoid it, but it doesn't, it doesn't help, right? It doesn't get, get better. Hmm. Yeah. We have to definitely sit there and confront it. So yeah. Yeah, we have to be willing to approach the things that make us anxious and sort of go in there anyway, and then the anxiety can drop. But if we avoid it, the anxiety gets worse. If you're afraid of flying and you keep avoiding flying, that anxiety doesn't go away. It gets bigger. Right, because the fear just builds up on top of one another. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to find ways, tips on how to increase sex and take questions from the audience. Okay. Great. Yeah. If you are listening to this commercial, you have a pulse. If you have a pulse, you have stress. You may need a therapist. How do you find a therapist? Oh, you go to your phone book. 
Wait, what's that? Go to the World Wide Web, you type in therapist near me. And then you find a list of acronyms. LMHC, LPC, NCC. <sighs> How on earth do I understand this and navigate this? Go to drkellyboucher.com. Dr. Kelly specializes in helping people that struggle with anxiety, stress, burnout, grief, depression, compassion, fatigue, sleep issues, body image issues. You can have help today. DrKellyBoucher.com Welcome back to the Bringing Intimacy Show, where intimacy is real. And today we've been talking about better sex. And we have a special guest on there, Jess Zimmerman, the author of a great book, Sex Without Stress. <laughs> yes. Yes. And she's been sharing with us about a variety of things that sometimes when people are stressed, there's a, a lot of avoidance that we avoid, whether we avoid talking about it, communicating, and even just expressing it. And so, um, Jess, what are some tips? And we all know that um, men and women are different. And of course, their relationship with women and women and men and men. Um, but what are some tips when the man doesn't want to have sex? What could his partner do? Well, I, I would say the tips are the same regardless of gender. Okay. Um, so first we have to understand that the person who has less desire probably has some obstacles to the desire they might feel. Like one of the things I'll say to people is I'm not trying to get you to have more sex. <laughs> I'm trying to help you want as much sex as you can want. Mm -hmm. So we've got to understand what those obstacles are. So if there have been expectations that haven't been met, if there is pressure on performance, if there is pain, if there are relationship issues, whatever's going on that's in the way for them, we need to uncover that and deal with what we can deal with, right? And try to fix it. And then we have to understand reactive desire because when we're not feeling proactive desire, when you're not in the mood, it doesn't mean it has to be a no to sexual activity, it's like, oh, maybe your reactive desire would come out if you started. So the way I talk to couples about this is to think about sex like you're going to the playground. It's just the outing that counts. It doesn't matter what you do when you get there. It's not about going down the slide or we got to do this and this and this. You just go and you start and you see what you feel like doing once you're there and you stay as long as you want to stay. You don't have it all planned out. You just get there and you improvise and you enjoy whatever it is you're doing. And when you're done, you're done. And the whole thing is a win. Like you literally cannot fail. Mm -hmm. And I believe that about sex. You literally cannot fail. You just go start. So if a couple can approach it like that, you got to create those opportunities. You've got to be able to communicate about what you might like. Where do you want to start? What do you want to do? Right? Figure out what might be arousing to you. Be open to that. And the key thing is to understand that just because we're starting doesn't mean we're going to have sex. Right. Because reactive desire will show up somewhere between 5% of the time and 95% of the time, but it will not be 100%. So there can't be an expectation that just because we got going, we, we are going to have sex. That will stop people. They That's will start saying no if they're not sure. Kissing. What's that? We'll stop kissing. Oh, absolutely. I can't even kiss without one. And, and you know, kissing is so important. Yeah. I mean... But if you just give somebody a kiss and then they think it's, you know, you know, right. it's like, wow. I mean, when did kissing stop being fun? Well, it's, it's so or interesting because what will happen, what'll happen with couples is they will do that. The person that's struggling to feel desire, it is sex for the couple. It'll start to be every time we start to be physical at all, we have sex. So they start to believe that that means every time we are physical at all, we have to have sex. Mm -hmm. That may not have ever actually been the expectation, but it just became what they did. And so they'll start saying no to even kissing because I'm not sure I can do the whole thing. So they start cutting off all those opportunities to just go to the playground. And those are the opportunities where their desire might show up, mm. right? But they're not doing it. They're only doing it if they're in the mood. And so that's narrowing their opportunities to almost nothing. So it's just so important to have this sort of playground mentality. It doesn't mean we're going to have sex. We're just going to go and see what happens. And if I end up aroused and into it, great, we'll have sex that we never would have had if we hadn't started. 
but it's okay if it doesn't go that way. Yes. They need to get, hold hands, walk into the playground. Right. Just hold hands. You don't know who's going to get on the swing. You don't. And it doesn't you matter. Don't know who's going to be pushing the swing. Just right. walk, hold hands right. up there. Yeah. Just right. go. have fun. Okay. Enjoy whatever you do. Jessa Zimmerman. Do you like <laughs> wings? Do you like the merry-go-round, the monkey bars? I loved the monkey bars when I was a little kid. <laughs> you know? I had to shimmy up like two or three poles to get there because I'm the, was the shortest kid on the playground. <laughs> I love your playground analogy. Yeah, right. I, I use it all the time. I just want to encourage our listeners that the call-in number is one 627 6008 Feel free to call in and ask Jessa Zimmerman, the author of Better... Oh, wait. Uh, well, we're talking about Better Sex, but the name of the book... Sex Without Stress. Stress... Sex without stress. So call in one eight eight six two seven six zero zero at eight and ask Jessa Zimmerman some questions. Okay. Yes, I have one quick question. So we like were you using the um, playground analogy? And mm-hmm. so let's say they're swinging, um, one is pushing the other, and then someone falls off. Or in the bedroom, you know, they're playing, and then um, someone loses their erection. So. The, uh, I don't want to say the worst thing. Here's what a lot of people that are struggling and starting to avoid sex do. Everything comes to a screeching halt and they either totally stop and feel defeated or they all turn the attention to the penis. We got to get this going. We got to get this going. And there's so much pressure as opposed to ah, lost his erection. What else can we do? Let's just enjoy what actually feels good. The nerve endings are all still there, hard or not. Um, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. And again, if you're if you're so focused on going down the slide and you have to have an erection for that, that's a lot of pressure. Right. As opposed to, wow, we have all this playground equipment. It doesn't matter what we do. We can still share pleasure and connection. Then it, it's really no big deal. Right, exactly. Let's just go into another, you know, place in the playground and play something else. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Kelly, what questions do we have? Oh, let's see here. One came in earlier, uh, no name was given, but I uh, wanted to know, they said that they're asexual and that they wonder if they really are asexual. I've been told I'm asexual. And uh, so I guess, you know, as a man thinks, so he is, uh, thoughts become actions. Well, told, told I'm asexual raises real flags for me because what'll happen is when somebody has lower desire, if they have reactive desire, if they have a lot of legitimate obstacles to their desire so that they are not wanting sex much, it's really easy for their partner to think, what's wrong with you? It's what I call, well, not I, but you know, what we call pathologizing the lower desire person. Something must be broken. You don't want sex. You're not normal. Everybody wants sex. Something must be wrong with you. And it's easy for that lower desire person to also feel broken. What's wrong with me? They don't understand how desire really works and what those obstacles might be. So they just conclude, I, I don't feel interested in sex. I must be asexual. Now, it's not like they, I mean, maybe they are, but I just think there's so much to rule out first <laughs> before we can conclude that you literally have no desire for sex with, with other people. Um, there's so many reasons people may struggle to feel that desire that we'd have to have that conversation first. You, did you ever see the movie Fried Green Tomatoes? Oh gosh, I did, but so long ago, I don't remember it. So remember Kathy Bates? I, I, I don't know. I just love this movie. In fact, I even, I was in Georgia and I went to the restaurant, the Whistle Stop <laughs> Cafe, but uh, Kathy Bates was, she went to a women's group and it was about sexuality and she was trying to do all these things to get her husband's attention. And all he was interested in was fried chicken and baseball. He was like, <laughs> she finally started to find different ways to communicate to him. And that was very directly saying, I want sex. Yeah. Well, if you, um, that one I don't remember because it was too long ago, but if you saw Hope Springs with Meryl Streep and Tommy Lee Jones, and Steve Carell was the therapist. Yeah. No. Oh, amazing movie. And she is really missing sex and they're in separate bedrooms and she even comes in and he kind of 
deflects and she finally just buys a ticket to go see this therapist for an intensive and he shows up and, and he'd had tremendous fear of letting her down and how did sex die off? And he felt so bad. I mean, all these blocks for him, it wasn't like he had no sex drive, but he was avoiding it because of the pressure and the stress. And that's what happens for so many people. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So as, um, and I think especially maybe, well, maybe it's on both ends. Um, people's pride gets so hurt. Yeah. 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 And if you're really, you know, like, oh my gosh, I don't want to hurt my partner, but um, I can't do this anymore. So you just, yeah. Yeah. I have another question coming in. Um, This is from a woman in Minnesota and she wants to know, she wants to know if you have any tips for foreplay or uh, premature ejaculation, not to pause it, but uh, to stop it from happening. Oh, in for, this is the same question for for how to do foreplay and not cause premature ejaculation. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying to think, there's a lot I think I'd want to know about that. Is this person ejaculating during foreplay? Uh, Uh, The question is worded, do you have tips on foreplay? My husband is a premature ejaculator. Okay, because t- typically, I mean, people can be all over the map, but typically people won't ejaculate during foreplay. They can take a lot of foreplay, but then right when they go to penetration is when they ejaculate. So there's something about the stress of that or potentially just the super enjoyment of that. So foreplay itself isn't necessarily that much a factor. Hmm. potentially, I mean, for some people, maybe they're getting so turned on in foreplay that they just don't last long by the time they get to penetrative sex. I wish I knew their age. Does age have a, does, is age in a factor on that? Or is that just my, I don't know. The one, the one thing about age is if somebody has been a lifelong premature ejaculator, uh, that's a little tougher than somebody who's just starting to have more pressure anxiety that could lead to it. There's also a matter of definition because sometimes people, uh, my partner can only go 10 minutes. That's premature ejaculating. It's like, no, 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 that's actually substantially longer than average. So people don't always understand, you know, the reality they've got these expectations that aren't based in fact. So I always want to check out what do people mean by premature ejaculation? Because technically, I mean, there's not exactly a line, but within a minute, minute and a half, you know, it's about causing distress more than the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so people, you know, in theory, he could maybe work with a sort of a start stop, almost like edging and masturbation to try to learn how to slow down right before orgasm is imminent right. to learn what that sensation is and to slow right. down. But that means he's going to have to slow down in sex too. Um, potentially there's, there are sort of numbing creams that people can use. Sometimes people get an SSRI. Uh, oh, wow. prescription because that has sexual side effects that can slow, slow somebody down. I mean, obviously you do that with a doctor. Oh, this is for sort of really lifelong chronic uh, premature ejaculation. But the other thing is to sort of learn to work with it. Maybe there are a bunch of other things you can be doing. Like we said, you only got a quick trip down the slide, but the rest of your sex life could be super fulfilling. Well, I have a question from a co-host. Uh, I have a question I've been curious about. Do you think that uh, people that um, masturbate like, like men, young men that masturbate frequently, excessively, um, as a teenager, uh, that will impact them in, in their relationship later. If it's, they, like, for example, if they don't get to masturbate very, they have to masturbate quickly because they may be caught or they're, they don't have that. And then that's going to impact their sexual life later. Or is that, I've always wanted to ask that, but I never asked anybody and I feel comfortable with you. (laughs) Um, I think it's possible. I, I do caution around the word excessive because. Well, like six to eight times a day. I, I wouldn't necessarily call that excessive. It's not getting in the way of anything else. I, you know, I, so I don't want to label. It's like anybody who masturbates more than me, that's too much. You know, I mean, there's not like a line at which it's excessive. I think it's more about how you're feeling about it and to what degree is it impacting school, work, relationships, you know, if that's all you're doing, you're never seeing friends. Yeah. I mean, you know, but again, masturbating a lot that people, it feels really good, right? You wouldn't tell somebody they're bad for reading a book. No, I'm not. um, But the question is not 
not to shame like the master. Right, right. So, but your question is, could somebody develop, the way I hear your question is, could somebody develop questions about rushing or about the kind of sensation that they need that might cause a problem later? And there I would say, potentially, yeah. I think we do train ourselves. Now we can also sort of untrain. Um, What do they call the is it the death grip syndrome or something? <laughs> There's some name for that where guys who masturbate and they use a really tight hand and then, you know, sort of no vagina is going to mimic that. And they can be used, you know, people can be used to certain sensations, right. and get um, attenuated to those or whatever the word is uh, used to those. And it could potentially be a problem, but not, I wouldn't say lifelong, not something you couldn't work around, but it might take a little bit of practice to retrain. Do you have different thoughts on that, Dr. April? Yeah, um, kind of what you're saying, but I think sometimes, yeah, if you've been, and that's not only with uh, masturbation, but if you've been going so fast with your sex, and um, and sometimes when you're younger, you do that, and then you're in yourself in a committed relationship all of a sudden, you know, and, and she wants to take her time and this and that. It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Get to the yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Jess. It's been wonderful. How can people reach out to you? Um, I think the best way is through my website, intimacywithease.com. Oh, okay. So there, I, and on there, I've got like links to my podcast or my free quiz or my download about how to talk to your partner about your sexual concerns, okay. my online program, like everything, my free webinar, <laughs> yes. how, how to want sex more, which I'm really excited about. It's brand new. Yes. Um, all that stuff's available there. Okay. So intimacy with ease. Okay. And intimacy have, with ease. Yeah. And you have a different website also, right? Well, I mean, I have my therapy website, but that okay. is, that's just for people in Washington. So that's why I don't lead with that because okay. of my therapy, I'm licensed in Washington, so I can only work with people in Washington, right. but the intimacy with ease site has all the resources that are available to everyone. Awesome. And you're on social media. I am. I'm at intimacy with ease on Instagram and then Facebook. I think it's just slash intimacy with ease. I okay. think. Okay. <laughs> are you on Clubhouse yet? I am not on Clubhouse because I don't have an iPhone. And from what I understand, it's only out for iOS. So uh, I am missing out on the Clubhouse or whatever it is. And somebody else is going to take my handle, but we'll see. No, they're not going to take your handle. Well, I, I, yeah, I can't get in there yet. So, yes. Well, you've got, you get a friend with an iPhone to create your Clubhouse and just <gasps> handle. My son has an iPhone. That's what I will do. Let him do that tonight and just, you'll have your handle. It'll be done. Nobody's going to take your handle. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. I don't know why that never occurred to me. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show. Definitely. It's been a pleasure. Yes. You're thank you. Time. And um, Dr. Kelly, you want to tell how people can find out about our show? Oh, yes. Uh, I do want to. Uh, I want to here I am. go to the bringingintimacyback.com. You can also find us at Bringing Intimacy Back on Instagram and on Facebook. And we are now having weekly uh, weekly shows. So find us uh, through, um, we're on Spotify. We're also on YouTube. But I think the best way to do, do this is to go to the Facebook website. But uh, please like and share as well. All right. Thank you. That's been a wonderful evening. Thank you guys so much. Bye.